All right, so, y'all, before there was a Renaissance church, which we're sitting in right now, before there was a fantastic kids department, which we got to hear about today, before there was a YouTube channel where you could watch the live streams of our services, shout out to my brother in Atlanta, (laughs) tuned in, there was me living in Washington, D.C., and not knowing even who this guy, Jordan Rice, was. And at the time, I was living in Washington, D.C. I was uh, in my late 20s, and I had worked a bunch of different jobs at that point. I had started my career working for a Fortune 100 company, which felt pretty good coming out of college that I had gotten this job in this significant company. And then from there, after a couple of years, I went to work for this scrappy startup company that I could kind of climb the career ladder a little bit, you know, get a promotion where I was managing people, take on more responsibility, did that for a few years, and then kind of got jaded with that, said, oh, I'm going to go work for a nonprofit. So I went and worked for a nonprofit where I helped work on branding and advocacy and celebrity partnerships and getting the word out about this great cause, feeling like this would help me find some meaning and purpose. And then finally, after that, I worked as a freelance consultant. So fast forward to when I meet Jordan Rice, and he's living in New York City. I'm living in D.C., as I said, and he tells me that he wants to start a church in Harlem. And this church would be hopefully a place where a lot of the barriers that often get in the way of people encountering Jesus will be taken away. It would be the kind of church where it didn't matter how you were dressed, you could come as you are. It would be the kind of church where you didn't have to know a whole bunch of Christianese in order to understand what people at the pulpit were saying. Um, It would be the kind of church where uh, you could come in and be honest about your struggles and your disappointments and your doubts and really wrestle with who God is and what that means for you and your life. I thought all of this sounded great. Uh, In fact, I thought it sounded amazing. And, you know, Jordan and I hit it off, uh, and we got married 10 months later. Uh, If you're thinking about doing the same thing, talk to me first, you know. (laughs) No. Joking, I kid, I kid. No regrets. Love you lots. Okay. No, but um, in all seriousness, I found myself here, moved from D.C. to Harlem, and I was in this really weird in-between place with my work. I was no longer really doing freelance work with different clients. I was helping to launch this church that we're all sitting in right now, and I didn't have a set title. I didn't have a set role definitely didn't have a salary, okay, because we didn't have a staff. It was me and Jordan in this apartment that we lived in right on this block, 121st Street, trying to figure this whole thing out. But just like anyone else who's moved to a new place, I was meeting a lot of new people, new to the city, and uh, I can remember as I would meet new people, just having this feeling of dread that would hit me in the pit of my stomach, And 
as I'm going through the pleasantries and the small talk of getting to know people, I have this dread because I know sooner or later the conversation is going to get to this point where people turn and they say, Jessica, so what do you do? And at the time, I dreaded that question because I didn't have this nicely packaged elevator speech to describe what I did professionally as I had for most of my young career up until this point. Uh, you know, I would tell people my husband was a church planter. Surprise, surprise, nobody knew what that meant. <laughs> and, you know, again, it's like, well, what do you do? Okay, cool, he's a church planter, but what do you do? And I was the The fact of it was I was doing unpaid labor for a church that no one had ever seen. And it might not even work out. That's the other thing. You know, like when I think about it, there were maybe nine people who were really excited about Renaissance Church. And uh, when I think about it a little bit more, four of them have the last name Rice. So I'll like let you all do the math on all of that. Um, so now today... By the grace of God, Renaissance has grown into this incredible community that I'm, I'm blown away to call this my church home. And, uh, but I still, I still sometimes stop and I consider that period of my life 10 years ago when I had those feelings of dread. And when I look under the hood of my anxiety, I can see that without that neatly packaged job description, I was really asking myself, um, what are people thinking of me? What do I think of me? Does anybody respect me? Do they think what I do is important now that I don't have the names of corporations and a title? to throw around. Looking back, I can now clearly see that I had made the perceived value of my work the measure of my worth. I had thought that if I had a job that was better, that was more important, that sounded more impressive, I would be something better. I was looking for my work to validate me. And maybe you're here today and you know what that feels like. Maybe you're watching online today. You know what that feels like. I mean, after all, this is New York City, right? This is the city where we hustle hard. This is the city where we prove that if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. Some of you are here in New York City solely because you had a dream and this is the place where your dream will be realized. A few weeks ago, The Atlantic posted or published an article titled, Why Americans Care So Much About Work. And in it, the writer Derek Thompson breaks down how our attitudes and our behaviors centered around our work have really shifted dramatically in the last 100 years. We weren't always like this. And the article points out that for thousands of years, people had little concept of progress in our labor. 
Most people around the world have just done the jobs of their parents or their grandparents before them, whether that was building or sewing or hunting or um, hammering, farming. Work for most of history has been a matter of survival and necessity. In fact, for hundreds of millions of people around the world today, work is just work. But in the 1800s here in America, we have this industrial revolution, and with it comes massive corporations. And for the very first time, we have something, this phenomenon or this concept of a career journey or a career path. So with all these big corporations comes now this ladder that you can climb and these positions that you can attain and you can become an SVP or you can become a president or you can become a CEO. The goal of work became much more than just survival and necessity. Now it was to progress and to become more and to gain more. And don't hear me bashing any of this. There's a lot of good that has come from all of it. But what's interesting is that now today, in 2023, we've taken things a step further. So now, as opposed to just telling people, oh, yeah, aim for the prestigious job, the one with the fancy title, now it's you should also figure out what you really love and work should be your passion, right? Figure out what you love, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. <laughs> Sounds nice, right? Here's this quote from this article that I cannot get out of my head. It says, in the past century, the American conception of work has shifted from jobs to careers to callings. Okay, so we've taken our work and we've gone from necessity to status, to meaning. The writer goes on to call this shift in ideology something called workism, and plainly stated, workism is just looking to your job to give you meaning in life. Now, we're in week two of this new sermon series called Commissioned, which is all about exploring how our faith and our work connect. So how does what you do vocationally for 40, 50, maybe 60 hours a week, whether that's paid or unpaid, whether you're in the business world or a student, how does that connect to our faith? And I wonder if you might be like me, wondering how did we get here? Like, how did we get in America to this age of workism? I think to truly understand our current moment, we actually have to go back, and not just back to the Industrial Revolution, but back to the story of creation itself. I want to take us to Genesis 2, verse 7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. Skipping down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, 
but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Last week, we talked about how scripture shows us that in creating us in his image, God created us to work. God would go on to create Eve. He'd place her in the garden alongside Adam with the same assignment. And there's work in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. So we know that to God, God sees work as part of what a good life involves. Not only that, we talked last week about how God sees our work as good and uses all of our work, our ordinary work, not just religious work or nonprofit work, but all of our work. So that's accounting, that's theater, engineering, cashiers, stay-at-home parents, everything in between. God created our work, and God wants to use our work to provide for his creation. Now, Jordan went way deeper into this last week, and if you happen to miss last week, I strongly encourage you to go back and check out the podcast or the replay on YouTube. Um, But again, we know God's intention for our work, but how did we get to this point where things have gotten a little twisted and we're looking for our work to give us meaning, where many of us are addicted quite frankly, to productivity and achievement, to making more money, to getting more recognition, for building some kind of legacy. Some of us are on this endless search for the perfect job, like a job soulmate, if you will, and feeling like if we don't find it, our life and our potential might be wasted. And others of us are feeling, quite frankly, just miserable, We're living for the weekends, work feels like drudgery, and without the kind of meaning and purpose that we're looking for. This this whole concept of workism doesn't necessarily mean that we're all workaholics. So workaholics is different, workaholism is different from workism. And this whole concept of workism also doesn't mean that we can't possibly, some of us, genuinely love the work that we're doing. But what workism is getting at is the idea that we're looking for our work to give us something far greater than it was ever designed to give us. So family, today, if you don't remember Anything else that I say, this is where I really want you to dial in. This is the the big idea for this morning. Our jobs were never meant to give us the significance our souls desire. Only God can. Genesis 11, verses 2 to 4, has something really profound, I think, to show us about how people can look to work to give us meaning. And this account is often known as the Tower of Babel. So I'm going to start in verse 2 here. It says, As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. 
Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered throughout the earth. Now, what were the builders of the tower working towards? I think verse 4 states it pretty plainly. And to be honest, I don't think the motivation has changed that much from the builders of the tower to the ambitious workers of today. They wanted to build a name for themselves through their accomplishments, meaning they saw themselves as nobodies who needed to be known and great. And there's this wiring, I think, in all of us that want to, we want to matter. I think God has placed this wiring in us himself. We want to be known. When the Bible uses a phrase like to make a name, it means the people were trying to construct an identity for themselves, right? We either can get our name, which is our defining essence, our security, our worth, our uniqueness from what God has done for us and in us, or we make a name through what we can do for ourselves. Now, the curse of Babel that we experience today is that many of us do work so that people will applaud, so that we'll have meaning, so that we'll be significant. Because we believe, like I did 10 years ago, that if I'm successful because I've done well, because I've worked in these places, because I have this job title, now I can feel good about myself. Again, work was intended to be a very good thing And I definitely want to validate the very natural desire we all have to be seen for the work that we do, Um, particularly when we've worked hard and when we've worked in service to others. But for a lot of us, for a lot of us, we're craving something well beyond just a good job or a well done. And work is the place where we look to prove ourselves, to validate our worth and our value And if significance is tied to our work performance or our rise on the corporate ladder, well then, we're never able to turn it off. There's always another goal to chase down. There's always another level to achieve. And some of us, some of us have worked to the detriment of our bodies, to the detriment of our relationships, to the detriment of our souls, because we're chasing after validation from our work. Now, on the other side of the coin, you might not be doing so great at work. And what happens then? If you're not doing as well as you want or you don't have the career that you think is significant enough or that you're proud of, or maybe you're in between jobs and you're in this place where you're sending out resumes and applying places and you're not hearing back from people. Or maybe you're retired and you're questioning, what kind of value do I contribute to society? Or maybe you're finding yourself envious of people who you believe have achieved a measure of career success. However you define that, um, you're envious of them. Why, why is that? What is that rooted in? God certainly affirms the dignity of all kinds of work. But here in New York City, in our modern day culture in 2023, 
maybe our culture doesn't affirm our work so much, every kind of work so much. In fact, for many of us, our work is this kind of currency. So that's why the first question after you meet someone is, so what do you do? Because people want to know, like, people want to size you up. People want to put you in a category. They want to know where you fit. Maybe they want to know how what you do might help them in their own personal career ambitions. Again, there's nothing wrong with work, and I'm sure that there's a handful of people who will tell you that they've achieved this like, magical balance of busy, rich, and deeply fulfilled. Right? Booked, busy, and blessed. But if we, if we as a people really allow um, ourselves to look to our jobs to make us feel like we've arrived at our full, our full and our best self, I think we are a culture that is set up for anxiety, for disappointment, and burnout. This is the essence of an idol, y'all. This is the thing that God warns us against, that we would take a good thing like our work, and turn it into an ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with loving your work, but if you look to it to give you something only God can, it's dangerous. And idols, they always, always overpromise and underdeliver. Right? Some of us even know what that's like, that we said, once I have this amount of money, I'll be happy. Once I have this job title, I'll be happy. And we get the thing. And maybe for a moment we're happy. But then we learn that our happiness is fleeting. That the whole thing, it's like chasing after the wind. We need protection from the ups and downs of this workism culture. We truly need to ask ourselves, What am I working for? What am I working for? If you need help answering that question this week, maybe you're in conversation with God and and you, uh, like the psalmist in 139, you say, search me, God. Know my heart as it pertains to my work. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. You know, I think if we're honest, we might see that we are searching to feel as though we matter. We're searching for security. We're searching for approval in the eyes of others. And if our faith can ever meaningfully impact our work, if we'll be the type of people living curious enough lives that people wonder, like, what's different about him? What's different about her? Then we need to make sure we're not disordering our lives and searching for significance from our work. While it is a good thing, it was never, ever intended to bear the weight of our identity. Work is what we do. It is not who we are. Our jobs were never meant to give us the significance our souls desire. Only God can. Now, in addition to questioning what drives us, really asking ourselves, why do I do the work that I do and what are my motivations, I want us as a people of faith to also hold our jobs in proper light. 
I want to go back to Genesis, this time to chapter 3. Now, this is after Adam and Eve have, in fact, done the thing that God commanded them not to do. They've eaten the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Theologians call this the fall of humans, and it, it marks this point where sin enters the world, and humans go from the state of connection and obedience to God to a state of dysfunction. So looking in Genesis 3, starting at verse 17, it states, And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. So, what do we see in the scripture? There's a couple of things I want to highlight. Uh, The first is, because of the fall, we see that our work will create frustration, okay? Our work will create frustration. Work is not itself a curse, but now it lies with all other aspects of human life uh, that are under the curse of sin, right? So as humanity fell from God, work got dragged down into the ditch right along with it. And so in verse 17, God says that uh, the harvest that Adam and Eve reap will come by means of painful labor all the days of your life. So we know all work and human effort will now be marked by frustration. And I think this is really important because I get to talk to a lot of you about your jobs or about your job searches, and a lot of times people are looking for the perfect job or the perfect career move. They might not necessarily call it that, but people really do believe that they have to figure out what they love and they have to figure out what they're uniquely gifted to do. They've got to find the job that lets them do that, and if they do, if they do work will be easy. Um, Now, of course, there's some jobs that are worse than others, and so this is not meant to dissuade you if you're finding yourself uh, looking for a job because you're currently working in a toxic environment. But it just is not realistic for you and for me to look for work to be this perfect thing. No job can stand up to that kind of standard, And God tells us we should always expect our work to involve some kind of pain. In verse 18, God says, our work will produce thorns and thistles for you, which means that alongside the beautiful product of our work, which is the plants, there will also be some sharp edges that will prick you, growing right alongside the beautiful work. Um, my mom is the ultimate green thumb. I didn't really experience uh, or did not inherit all of her skills, I should say. She comes over to my house and judges all my house plants. But anyway, um, she's amazing when it comes to plants. And one of our favorite things to do is to go to the New York Botanical Garden. Uh, We try to get there every season. She walks around naming all the names of the plants, like 
chrysanthemum, verbaceous, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, sure, whatever. And then, um, but there's this one whole section of New York Botanical Garden that is a rose garden, and there's all these different roses, and they look incredible. And the thing that's really fascinating is that from a distance, a rose bush looks really beautiful, right? But when you get up close and personal to a rose bush, what do you see? You'll notice thorns. Growing right beside the beautiful plant are these painful thorns, beauty and pain in the same place. So what this scripture is pointing to is that, yes, if you're fortunate, you'll see glimpses of what work was intended to be. You'll get to see how your work brings glory to God. You'll get to see glimpses of how God is caring for his creation through the work that you do. But even our best work will have thorns and thistles there too. The challenging interactions with our coworkers. Mm, I heard a mm, right. The program that crashes before your work is saved. Right, I got that now, okay, right? I got another one for you. The long hours due to last-minute changes. Right. Or maybe it's just like the physical pain, depending on what your job is, from having to stand for eight or ten hours a day. Your work shouldn't do damage to your soul, but we do need to know that even our best work will grow alongside some discomforts. So we'll do well to normalize this and not feel like things are off and assume we're in the wrong job when we experience frustration. In fact, I think these thorns and thistles are fantastic reminders of our limitations. They point us uh, toward our need and real dependency on something greater outside of ourselves. These thorns and thistles, they might even be the things that drive you to your knees in prayer. Like perhaps you actually don't get just frustrated with the coworker you're beefing with, but you pray for them. The thorns and thistles might be the thing that God uses to produce patience and gentleness and self-control and other fruits of the spirit in your life. You know, there's days here at Renaissance that are just absolutely incredible. The worship is amazing. Uh, People are maybe coming up to me and Jordan in the hallway talking about how God is moving in their lives, how a a prayer request has been answered. Um, But then there might just be like some little thing, like, I don't know, maybe like a friendly little critter that runs through the school or something breaks down or something's not right. And we've trained ourselves to just kind of turn and look to ourselves and say, thorns and thistles, right? Now, the other thing, we know that because the fall, our work will create frustration. The other thing we see here is that our work will lack permanence. Our work will lack permanence. In verse 19, it reminds us of something that our culture is so good at shielding us from. It says, you will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For you are dust and you will return to dust. So finance people, no matter how good last quarter was, 
another quarter is here, and you got to do it all over again, this time with even better results, right? My entertainers in the room, even though last night's show or concert was amazing, tonight's show, it's a brand new crowd, brand new critics waiting in the wings to talk about you if you do anything wrong. My stay-at-home parents, have you ever noticed that you can make an amazing dinner for your kids and these jokers wake up the next day wanting to eat all over again? Like, they got to eat three times a day? Really? I feel like we can make it like one, but no, they want to eat. No matter how amazing yesterday was, today is a new day and your best work lacks permanence. In every industry, we all feel the pain of how temporary our work is. Both it and you will return to dust. A friend once told me a few years back something that I think of often. She said, all roles are temporary. I'm a communications director now, but one day I won't be. Um, some of you who are in retirement, you understand this well. You were this for many years, and now that ceases to be your role. Some of you know this hard reality if you got caught up in the recent layoffs that the tech world was experiencing. Like, for no fault of your own, your role, the significance you attached to it, was taken away from you. And that hurts. That's incredibly hard. It might even be scary But I'll tell you, if your identity, if all of who you are was found in that job and it was taken away, then it's devastating. But our jobs, they were never meant to give us the significance our souls desire. Only God can. We see the God of the Bible worked with his hands in the dirt to create us. And when God put on flesh and came to earth as Jesus, he came as a worker, as a carpenter. And he experienced the thorns and the thistles of this world. And not just that, after living a perfect life, he took on the penalty of our sins. He took on the crown of thorns. He is the one who affirms our precious value. He says that if you try to earn your significance from work, you're going to be exhausted. He says, I've already done the work for you. When we look at Jesus on the cross, we can be assured of his love. He says, I know you by name. You don't have to make a name for yourself. You don't have to give up everything for your work because I gave up my life for you. I love this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 12. It's Jesus speaking to us. And he says in Luke 12, 6 and 7, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies and yet not one of them is forgotten by God. But indeed, every single hair on your head is accounted for, is counted. I know it. 
Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what other people think of you. Don't be afraid of making the absolute perfect career move or else everything will fall apart. Don't be afraid of the expectations that others have placed on you. Don't be afraid if you don't reach some magical land of potential. I love you. You are worth way more than many sparrows. May our souls, family, may our souls find what we desire in that. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your demonstration of your love for us. We can easily look away from you and forget and fall into the trap of thinking that in order to matter, in order to be significant, we need something to validate us. We need our work to prove that we're worthy. But Father, we cast down that lie and we throw it at your feet. God, and we pray that you would help us to remember that you know us by name. You love us. So God, we pray that in this we are free to, to work in a way that we can bring you glory all for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.